Okay, at about this time, what happens is someone introduces the teacher for the morning. But guess what? I'm the teacher and there's no introduction. So we've got a lot of work to do. So I'm going to dive right into it. We've got, and so I want you to grab your Bibles. If you have them, if not, the scripture will be on the screen. But I'm going to tell, tell you we're going to be jumping around a lot. It's all in Isaiah. I, that's a shocker, I know. But there's a lot of scripture that we're going to get through. Um, now, if I haven't met you, though, I want to say, I think almost all of you I know, but there are some of you that may be new. If I've never met you, I'd love a chance to say hi to you and to, to meet you, so please stop by afterwards as well. Now, in this week's lesson, we were introduced to the four servant songs of Isaiah, and Isaiah describes this mysterious figure who uh, is called a servant of the Lord, and New Testament writers point to this figure and identify him as Jesus Christ. And for centuries, the people of God waited for the coming of the Messiah. Based on the prophecies of the Old Testament, including Isaiah, the people of Israel believed that God would send an anointed king to free them from oppression and to bring justice and peace to the world. And so they expected a military dominant figure, a sort of a general of sorts who would march on Jerusalem, which was a center of religious and political power. He would rally an army, launch an attack, and destroy all opposition, and then take his place as the rightful king. And even in Jesus' day, this is what they were waiting for, because this is what they'd been taught since they were children. This is what they were hoping for. And they knew the prophecies. They knew all about it, about the suffering servant. They had studied them. They had memorized them. They were sure. They were confident. They believed. They knew how God was going to work. And yet, God works in unexpected ways. And never before in all of Israel had anyone connected the suffering servant with the Messiah. The idea that the Messiah would suffer was unheard of because the Messiah was a king, not a servant. The Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice. He was supposed to set all things right and reign in victory. So how could he be a suffering servant? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, God works in unexpected ways. Because the kingdom of God advanced through Jesus' suffering, defeat, humiliation, and death. Jesus is the king. He's just not the king that they were expecting. And this morning, I want to show you a picture of Jesus, the servant king who comes to bring justice and healing through salvation to the world. And so we're going to look at these servant songs, and we're going to spend most of our time, though, in Isaiah 53, which I believe is the single most comprehensive passage in the Bible that tells us about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's why the New Testament writers keep going back to it. Now, I have a disclaimer to make, because this was a really intimidating message to put together. Because I have one goal for you this morning. I want you to see the beauty of Jesus. And I want you to be so utterly captivated by him that it will leave you speechless. And yet I don't have the words to describe all that he is. But I'm going to give it a shot. So, this morning we're going to walk through these servant songs. Here's what I want to show you. Jesus is the servant king who comes to bring justice and healing through salvation to the world. And here's what I want to show you about him. I want to show you his character, his work, his way, and his motive. And then I'm going to close with just one application about what it means for us, his people. His his character, his work, his way, his motive, and then what does it mean for us, his people? Now, 
Uh, let's start with this character. What was he like? Isaiah tells us that he's wise. He writes this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Isaiah tells us that Jesus acts wisely. He has a mission to accomplish, and he's going to get the job done. He's going to be effective and successful in doing it. The wisdom of God displayed in Jesus, the servant of the Lord, will confound human wisdom. He is tremendous in glory and power. And then he goes on. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is, is the wonderful counselor. He's a skilled counselor because he's been taught by God. He's attentive to God. Morning by morning, God instructs him and he listens. I want you to think of someone in your life who you think, who you consider to be wise. I would guess, I would guess that one of the reasons you think that they're wise, one of the things that you love about them is that they listen well. And Jesus listens well to the Father, and this allows him to know the word that will sustain the weary. And this brings us to the next characteristic about him. He is gentle and tender. He's wise, but he's also gentle and tender. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The word bruised there means crushed. It's a, it's a deep contusion that is either injured or destroyed a vital organ. It's a death blow. Now, it doesn't show up on the surface. It's an internal wound. A bruised reed is a stalk of grain that will never produce grain again because it's broken at an angle. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, can heal a bruised reed so that it can produce grain again. A flickering candle, he will never blow out. Jesus is so gentle and so tender and so wise that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up our wounds. He is gentle with the bruised. He doesn't put out a flickering candle. He's attracted to the hopeless. He loves the weak and the fragile, the ones that feel broken and beaten up and busted up by life. And maybe in the outside they look good, but deep inside they feel like they're dying. And in a room this size, there are some of us here this morning that we look good on the outside, and yet deep inside, it's a whole different story. And Jesus is gentle, and he's tender with you. No matter how weak you feel, no matter how beaten up by life you feel, he will never deny you, he will never be harsh with you. He's gentle and tender. He's wise, he's gentle and tender. Here's a third characteristic. He has unwavering inner strength. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. This is the servant of the Lord talking. This is Jesus, and he says, I have not turned away. I have not drawn back. I have set my face like a flint. That flint is the hardest of stone. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do what I'm called to do, and I know I will not be put to shame because it's God who fights for me and vindicates me. Jesus' identity is so deeply rooted in, in God, in God himself, that he can withstand. He, he doesn't allow a criticism and opposition and even physical torture to stop him. He says, nothing will stop me. Nothing will make me turn back. There's nothing he will not endure to obey God and to love us to the end. Friends, what kind of person, 
What kind of person has the inner strength to pray for the forgiveness of the very people who are crucifying him? Who does that? Jesus does that. He is gentle and tender, that's true, but he is also strong, and his strength is not the kind of strength that the world admires. He is unwavering inner strength. Fourth characteristic, he is ordinary and unimpressive. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should, be, we should desire him. He grew up like a root out of dry ground. That's a reference to soil that is not cared for or, or neglected. Jesus came from lowly origins. He, he came from a family that was so poor that when he was born, they couldn't even offer the regular temple offering. They had to take a provision for the poor. Jesus was, 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 came from humble beginnings. And Jesus was not an attractive man. He, he's no Idris Elba. I think Idris Elba is an attractive man. You might not know who he is. Don't Google him now. Do that later. But Isaiah tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. See, this, this servant, Jesus, has nothing that the world looks to to say, that's someone powerful, that's someone successful. He doesn't have looks, he doesn't have money, he doesn't have education, he has no credentials or pedigree, he's not from a high-class, wealthy family. He's ordinary and unimpressive. And that's not the kind of king we look for. But God works in unexpected ways. And Jesus comes to earth as an ordinary man to identify with us because most times, don't you and I feel pretty ordinary? Most times, don't we feel pretty unimpressive? Jesus knows what it's like to be us. Fifth characteristic, he was a man of suffering. He was a man of sorrows. Isaiah says, I offered, this is the, the servant talking, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is a description of the events leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus was beaten, they pulled the hair out of his beard, they humiliated him, abused him, and tortured him. And he was beaten so badly that people were appalled by his appearance. That means that, that it made them sick to their stomach to look at Jesus. They, they mocked him and they spit at him and then they hung him on a cross, the worst, most shameful, humiliating death possible. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. What was he like? He was wise and gentle. He is tender and strong. He has unwavering inner strength, but he's also ordinary and unimpressive. He was a man of suffering. That's a description of his character. Tells us what he was like. Now let's look at his work. What did he come to do? He came to do two things. Here's the first one. He came to bring justice. Isaiah writes this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. And mishpat, uh, it means bringing an end to violence and oppression, but it's, it's so much more. The mishpat always goes along with shalom which is the Hebrew word for peace. And, and it means uh, it's when all creation is operating in wholeness and harmony and flourishing. It's all humanity living in right relationship with God, with themselves, and with one another. Sorrow and suffering are incongruent with the way God intended the world to be. It's an invasion, an assault, a deadly virus that has entered into our world. Because in the beginning of time, God created everything and he said, it's good. There was no suffering, there was no sorrow. Everything and everyone was in right relationship with each other. But we know the story. Along the way, humanity rebelled against God. We decided to live apart from God, to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. And the servant, Jesus, is moving the trajectory of all of history towards what will mark the end of time. He will bring justice so that everything in society is in right relationship with everything else. He will stop the invasion. He will overthrow our enemy once and for all. He will remove the virus of sin. He will restore all that is broken. He will fix all that is fractured. He will make all things new and he will heal the world. And that brings us to the next thing that the servant comes to do. He comes to bring healing through salvation. Friends, we have to start here. We have to start with what's true about us. Isaiah says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us, every single one of us, regardless of your age, your gender, your socioeconomic background, your, your education, your ethnicity, every single one of us are like sheep and we have gone astray. We have rebelled against God and we've tried to be our own gods, the masters of our own destiny. And when the Bible talks about sheep, it's not a compliment. Like we think of sheep and we think of these cute, fluffy <laughs> lambs and the Bible's a bit more realistic than we are. When the Bible talks about sheep, sheep are nervous, dumb animals that need their shepherd to care for them, to protect them, to guide them. And without the shepherd, they're gonna wander off to rough terrain. They could become prey for predators. Sheep cannot make it on their own, but that doesn't stop them from wandering off. We think we can make it on our own. We think we can run our own lives based on our wisdom and our strength and our resources. But in the end, it will only result in destruction. And Jesus is the good shepherd and he lays down his life for his sheep. He becomes the lamb that is led to the slaughter. He died on the cross in our place so that you and I could be saved. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Those words, pierced and crushed, they indicate uh, in the Hebrew the most violent, painful death imaginable. Ten times in chapter 53, it says that Jesus takes something on himself that doesn't belong to him, but rightly belongs to us. And this is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died a substitutionary death. He died in our place. 
Verse four, he says, he took our pain, he bore our suffering. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse six, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah 53, 12, Isaiah writes, he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus actually quotes this verse the night before he dies. And to be numbered with the transgressor doesn't mean that Jesus was a sinner or a transgressor. It means he was counted as one. It means he was treated as a sinner. And theologians refer to this aspect of Jesus' death as the great exchange. And here's the first part. Jesus takes on what we have. He's treated as if he had done all the things we have done. But then look at this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He will see his offspring means that he will see the result of his work on the cross. Not only are we forgiven, but we are justified. That means we have right standing with God. Jesus gets what we deserved. Instead of us being crushed, Jesus is crushed. Every wicked thought, every lie, every angry word, every betrayal, every word of gossip, every single wrong act, all the things you should have done but did not do, all the things you did that you should not have done, all of that Jesus takes on himself. He heals our wounds by becoming wounded unto death. He heals our sorrows by becoming a man of sorrow. He rescues us from death by dying in our place. Jesus is treated by God as if he had done everything you have done so that now if you put your trust in him, you are treated by God as if you had done everything that Jesus has done. Do you see the great exchange? So now when God looks at you, he sees only the beauty, the perfection, the the goodness of his son. He looks at you and he says, this is my beloved daughter, and in her I am well pleased. He loves you as fiercely and as fully as he loves his son. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you, and friends, that's the gospel. What did he come to do? He came to bring justice and healing through salvation to the world. We've looked at the servant's character. We've looked at his work. Let's look at his way. How did he do it? Jesus' strength is displayed through weakness and his power is demonstrated through vulnerability. Isaiah begins chapter 53 with this question. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a rhetorical question because nobody would believe this message. The only way for someone to believe that the Messiah, the liberating king, would show his power and his beauty through the humiliation and shame of death on the cross, the only way someone could believe that is if God opens their eyes to that truth. The arm of the Lord is a metaphor for God's power. Jesus is God in the flesh, and his life and death on the cross are not what power looks like, at least not according to the world. He is ordinary and unimpressive, yet he has the kind of inner strength that is indestructible. He is both powerful and vulnerable, and in his weakness, he shows himself strong. He does not save himself so that he could save us. He gives up everything so we could gain everything, and he comes with the kind of power that the world knows nothing of. He comes as our servant king to save us and to serve us by giving his life as a sacrifice for us. 
true power, real strength are seen in weakness and vulnerability. This is the way of Jesus. We've looked at the servant's character, his work, his way. Let's look at his motive. Why did he do it? Jesus willingly laid down his life. He didn't protest. He didn't defend himself when he was falsely accused or arrested. He didn't call upon an army of angels to destroy Pilate and his soldiers because uh, when they were abusing him and mocking him and torturing him, he does none of that. He willingly goes to the cross. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, what kept Jesus on that cross? And friends, it was not the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you and me. He did it for love. He was crushed. He was disfigured beyond human recognition. He loses everything and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you're worth it. He loves us more than anything else, even his very life. He gives up everything so that we could gain everything. He gives up everything to make a way for us to be with him forever. That's good news, isn't it? But here's the thing. The cross is also offensive. Paul calls the cross an offense. He writes this in a letter to the church at Corinth. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is offensive to people who think we're too narrow-minded when we say that the only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus' work on the cross. The cross is offensive to people when we say that apart from Jesus' work on the cross, good people and bad people are all in the same boat. Because in our world, we categorize people as good or bad, but this categorization is based on how we're doing relative to one another. And this isn't to say that God doesn't work good through human action, because of course he does. But the gospel says that we must acknowledge that all we like sheep have gone astray. And when we think like this, when we categorize people in this way, what we're doing is we're deciding the standard of goodness and we judge people based on it. But the gospel says you can't measure yourself in that way. The true standard of goodness is Jesus. And if he's the standard, then the only truly good people are the ones who have always obeyed God and who have never sinned. And none of us can say that. The power of the gospel is that freedom, life, and joy are available to every person, even to the ones that we consider bad. If they would acknowledge their need for God, repent of their sins, and turn to Jesus and put their trust in Jesus. For those of you who have been here for for a while, you know that part of my story is that I was sexually abused at the age of 10 for a period of two years. And I, I never told anyone about it until well into adulthood. And because of my abuse, I just never felt loved. I never felt good enough. And so I tried to find my value and my worth in the love and approval of others. And initially it was my parents, and so I tried to do really well at school, and I tried to do all the right things at church, And then later on, it was my friends, and so I wanted to be popular. And then after that, it was relationships with men. But no matter what anyone did, no matter what anyone said, it was just never enough. Like they could never give me what my heart so desperately longed for. I struggled with with anger, with rage, with a a lack of self-control. I lived every moment of my life being afraid. 
I didn't know there was another way to live. And I did everything I could to try to make myself feel good enough, but it never worked. My senior year of college, I had everything that the world told me should make me happy. I, I landed the, the right job. I was on, well on my way to a lucrative career. I had lots of friends. I was in the right relationship. But deep inside, I was miserable. And, and through a series of events, God opened my eyes to who he was. Because deep down inside, I just, I knew, I believed in Jesus. I just didn't think he loved me. Because if he did, how could all of these things have happened to me? And God met me in the darkest moment of my life. And he opened my eyes to who Jesus is and how much he loved me. And, and in a way that I'd never experienced before. And in that moment, I realized because of Jesus' work on the cross, I was loved, I was accepted, I was forgiven, I was free. And through uh, counseling and the love and support of, of friends and family, God began to heal all of this pain that had invaded my life ever since I could remember. Now, many of you know that part of my story. Here's the part of my story that I don't often share. In fact, only my closest friends and family know this part of my story. Much later, well into my 30s, through another series of events, I felt it was necessary to confront my abuser. And so I wrote down all the things I wanted to say to him. And uh, I met with him, along with the, with the support of my best friend and two of my pastors and my family. And I looked this man right in the eyes and I told him all the ways that he had so viciously and violently wronged me. And that was supposed to be it. That's all I had planned to do. But in that moment, the Spirit of God whispered to me, if the gospel's true for you, it's true for him too. And so I was able in that moment to say, I forgive you. And while we may not be able to have a relationship God wants to have a relationship with you. And the gospel, the power of the gospel, the forgiveness of God is available to you if you would repent and turn to him. Friends, that's offensive, isn't it? So now let me pause for a moment because I want to be very clear. If you're here this morning and that has been your experience, I want to say I am so sorry. And my heart grieves for you, but more than that, the heart of God grieves for you. And I am not in any way telling you you need to do what I did. I'm just, I just know that's what God called me to do. Here's what I know to be true. The greatest demonstration of the power of the cross in my life is the work of rescue and healing that Jesus has done in me. The second greatest demonstration of the power of the cross in my life was me being able to say to this man who had so viciously and violently wronged me, I forgive you. The gospel is available to you too if you would repent and turn to Jesus. It's true for me. It's, it could be true for you as well. Tim Keller writes this. The cross is by nature offensive. And we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of those two things, they haven't understood it. The love of Jesus is what kept him on that cross, and it was for you, and it was for me, and it was, it's for every single person who would believe. Why did he do it? 
He did it for love. Now, what does this mean for us, his people? I have one thing to share with you. Do you understand how loved you are by God? Jesus laid down his life for you. No one took it from him. He willingly laid it down. It was his love for you that held the creator of the universe on that cross. He gave up everything so that you could gain everything, and he calls you his beloved daughter. Brennan Manning writes this. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. The truest thing about you is that you are loved by God. Realize the greatness of God's love and live out of it. Think about how differently you would live if you understood the greatness of God's love. Like if you really believed it, all of your insecurities, all of your fears would be washed away in the vastness of God's love for you. All love, all real love is sacrificial love. So how might you love others with the kind of love that Jesus has loved you with? How might you pour yourself out for, for others, even the ones that you think don't deserve it? The more sacrificially you love others because of the security you have in being loved by God, the more they will see his beauty and his goodness in you. And this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We do what Jesus did. We love. Jesus is the servant king who comes to bring justice and healing through salvation to the world. He is wise and gentle. He has unwavering inner strength, and yet he was an ordinary man so that he can identify with us. He was a man of suffering. Jesus is treated by God as if he had done everything you have done so that now if you put your trust in him, when he looks at you, he sees only the goodness, the beauty, and the perfection of his son. Jesus' strength is displayed through weakness and his power is demonstrated through vulnerability. It was not the nails that held him to the cross, it was his love for you. And the power of the cross is available to all who would believe so that now, as his beloved daughters, you and I are invited to realize the greatness of his love and to live out of it. Friends, we love because he first loved us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love for us. It is vast and immeasurable. We thank you that you gave us Jesus. We thank you that he willingly laid down his life for us. That he is our servant king who comes to bring justice and healing through salvation to the world. And so Lord, would you help us to realize the greatness of your love and now to live out of it. Would you help us to be open to the work that you want to do in and through us? We love you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.